your Bibles with you, uh, I do invite you to turn with me um, to, uh, whoops, I forgot to change that title. Sorry, you're going to see a title come up on the next slide that's wrong. I've, I've changed the title, and I thought I changed it on the slide, but I didn't. But you won't see the slide for the most part. So uh, uh, I, I had to change the title because Karen said, Rod, you've already used one Star Trek illustration this year, and you, you can only have one per year. So, uh, so I wanted to shift that a little bit uh, and all that. But we'll go to uh, Acts chapter 11. Uh, we'll read verses 19 to 30. And then I'll skip over to chapter 13 and uh, read verses 1 to 3. While you're turning, I am going to unshare and start the live stream. Uh, that's one of the things that we're going to try to do uh, each time um, is uh, do a bit of live streaming around this time of 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 the day uh, for each service so people can pick that up on uh, YouTube either now or a little bit later. So pardon me for a moment as I oh, as I try to find how to do that now. I made a mistake. There it goes. Hit that button. So we are turning to the book of Acts, chapter 11, and then we will. Uh, skip over to chapter 13. But we're going to start there uh, with verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, uh, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, that's the Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. Now, this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And over to chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, 
Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Now, For the church, we are living, obviously, in a crazy time where churches uh, throughout our nation, uh, throughout the nations of the United Kingdom and uh, even the United States, uh, uh, have shut their doors uh, in order to prevent the spread of COVID-19, have struggled with you know, how you do church in, in a time of a pandemic, uh, and wrestle even with issues about who the church is and what we are called to be and what we're called to do as the church. And uh, as I've said before, even though I do not think that God sent this virus as some kind of judgment on the earth, I, I think it arose out of human sinfulness. Uh, at the same time, I do think that God is using this and is calling us as Christians to rethink who we are as the church, to rethink what we do as the church, to re- rethink how we've been organizing ourselves as churches, and, uh, and, and to really consider what God is calling us to do going into the future. Now, I've been doing that here at City Temple, as you know. Uh, I've been praying a lot and seeking the Lord a lot, and I've been getting some guidance and some direction from the Lord, I believe, uh, that I'm hoping to begin to start to put together in some kind of coherent package that you can read and, and, and begin to understand. But I think all of us as Christians need to engage in this process of reflection and challenging ourselves uh, with what we have thought about the church, what we've assumed about churches, what they should look like, what they should be, and what they should do. Now, one of the dangers of this time is that invariably when the church goes through seasons like this, and and I've heard this many, many times over my lifetime, uh, you get Christians who say, hey, we need to go back to the New Testament. We need to be the church once again of the New Testament. And, uh, and people who say that, they've really never read Ecclesiastes. Uh, I really love this verse from uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. You know, frankly, I don't want to go back to the New Testament. I want to go forward to the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes again. I don't want to go back to places like Corinth, uh, a church that, even though it was planted by Paul, remained quite messed up as a church, uh, maybe for more than 100 years. They they never seemed to get their act together. Uh, I don't want to go back to some of those times, but I want to go forward into the future that God has planned for us, a future that I believe very firmly will be even greater. Uh, The glory of the latter church will be greater than the glory of the former church. Uh, And I believe that uh, that is going to happen. And I believe that that's true for City Temple, uh, as well as for any church that's alive in this time that wants to move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, although I don't believe that we need to go back to the New Testament church, at the same time, I think we have a lot to learn, obviously, from the New Testament. It's where God sets the foundation for who we are called to to be as the church and what we are called to do as the church. And obviously, the examples of the church in the New Testament and places like the book of Acts, uh, as well as all the letters, 
uh, are very important for us to reflect on and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us and lead us to a deeper understanding of, of who we are as the Church of Jesus Christ today. And for us here at City Temple, uh, the church in Antioch that I was reading about there uh, is a church that's really close to our hearts because we feel like God has spoken to us a lot as a church through the example of the church in Antioch. And if you think about it, uh, the church in Antioch, in many respects, was quite similar to City Temple. I mean, for example, think, think about Antioch itself as a city. Antioch was a multicultural, cosmopolitan city that was built on trade. It was located on a river that was close to the sea. Sound like London, perhaps? Uh, and the Antioch Church. Uh, the Antioch Church showed a concern for God's kingdom purposes in the world, not just for reaching God's people, the Jews. I mean, that sounds like a whole lot like City Temple as well. Uh, the Antioch Church served as a place of training and releasing people into ministry and mission, uh, such as we saw with Paul and Barnabas. I mean, that's part of our history as a church as well. Uh, the leaders of the Antioch Church, uh, which we see there in the passage in, in uh, uh, chapter 13, uh, they were from a geographically diverse background. They were from several different places around the world, uh, and, they, and it really emphasized the cosmopolitan nature of the church. Again, sounds a lot like City Temple. Uh, team leadership was a characteristic of church leadership. Now, frankly, without the, the team of elders here at City Temple, um, I think I, I, I couldn't quite survive. I mean, I, I really depend on the team that we have here. And, and the diversity of the Antioch Church, encompassing people from many different nations, really pointed to God's mission to all the nations of the world. Again, sounds a bit like City Temple. So you can understand why we have so strongly identified with the church in Antioch here uh, for us here at City Temple. And when I reflect on it in the light of this sermon series where we're talking about the church as God's agent for disruption, uh, I can see very quickly how the Antioch church functioned as God's agent for disruption. We see that in the story. Uh, first of all, they started reaching out to people who had no Jewish background and no Jewish connections. Up until this point in time, primarily the outreach of the new Christians, beginning in Jerusalem, but the other places to which they spread, the primary outreach were to Jewish people, Jewish settlements in these cities. Now, Antioch did a little bit of that, but actually, there were some leaders in the church that became very bold, uh, and they started actively uh, sharing the good news with those who were Gentiles, who had no Jewish connections whatsoever. And that was quite disruptive in the day. Uh, the Antioch church ministered very effectively without using the Jewish resources of synagogue, temple, or Jewish traditions. I mean, if you go back to Jerusalem, the Jews in Jerusalem were still meeting frequently in the temple courts, uh, the outer courts of the temple, uh, because it was a big space where they could have some larger gatherings. They were also meeting in homes. Uh, and as the uh, Jewish church began to, uh, that early Jerusalem church began to reach out, uh, 
they primarily reached out to the synagogues and it was using the Jewish customs and using the Jewish identity uh, that gave them uh, a foot in the door, if you will, to share the gospel uh, with, with other people. But the church in Antioch, they didn't have any of that and they didn't use that. Uh, they used different resources completely. Uh, also, the Antioch church was disruptive because it sent out people in ministry without reference to the hierarchy in Jerusalem. You know, they were sending out people by the leading of the Holy Spirit. They didn't go back to Jerusalem and said, hey, is it okay if we send out Barnabas and Saul, uh, who later became Paul? Is it okay if we send them out? Uh, do you want to vet them? Do you want to uh, inquire of them to make sure that they're worthy ministers of the gospel? Uh, these guys in Antioch, they were just praying. The Holy Spirit said, send these guys out. And they said, okay, we'll do that. And they prayed for them, laid hands on them, and sent them out. And so the Antioch church was a very disruptive church. Uh, it even disrupted the city as it expanded and grew into the city of Antioch. And so the Antioch church actually became one of the three most important Christian centers in the early years of Christianity. You had Jerusalem, you had Antioch, and then eventually you had Alexandria. And later on, they added Rome to that mix. And then Antioch and the Antioch church became influential without a building, without a lot of money, and without any kind of denomination or hierarchy other than the elders or, or the leaders that God established there. And for much of the first couple of hundred years of the, the history of Christianity, Christians were disruptive around the Roman Empire everywhere they went. Uh, that's why they were persecuted so heavily. They challenged the Roman system. They challenged uh, Roman religion. Uh, they challenged Roman customs. Uh, they even challenged Jewish customs. And so for a season, they were disliked by the Jews and they were disliked by the Romans. And the Romans would persecute them quite heavily from time to time. Uh, and so they, they were people who literally uh, just seemed to be overturning the whole world order in how they lived and what they did. And then suddenly over time, that began to die out. Now, a lot of people like to blame Constantine for this, but I'm not going to blame Constantine for this. But I think that there are other reasons why this disruptive influence began to die out uh, over the centuries, even though the church in pockets continued to disrupt and the church continued to grow, which was a good thing. It continued to evangelize. It continued to make disciples. All of those things were good, but it began to lose some of its edge and why that happened, I think we can begin to see it if we look a little bit at, at church history. The, the first thing that happened as churches ceased to function as God's agent for disruption, they accumulated property. Uh, churches began to accumulate possessions, building, land, and, and possessions, building, and land that were not needed or not used directly in ministry and outreach. I mean, there's nothing wrong with churches having property as long as they're using that property uh, to advance God's kingdom, to really reach people, uh, reach the lost for Jesus Christ. 
Uh, we can see an example of this in buildings, what began to happen. You know, the first churches, as we know, met in houses, met in homes. Um, and then later on, they began to meet in public spaces like warehouses uh, or parts of the marketplace or temple courts if you were in Jerusalem and the like. But, you know, the first church building that we know of uh, is from 233 uh, and is actually a converted house. Uh, they tore down the wall between two rooms in order to create a larger gathering space for the church in the house. By the way, that's how City Temple started. Uh, our first building, if you will, uh, was called a meeting house, which basically was uh, the houses were packed together back then, and somebody took two houses and tore down the wall between the two on an upper level floor so that they could have a meeting space uh, for the church back then. And that was really handy, too, uh, if you wanted to avoid the authorities, which uh, some of our forebears had to do, uh, because uh, until 1640, it was actually illegal to be part of a church like City Temple. So, so that's the first thing. You know, they, they began to accumulate a lot of property uh, that they didn't really need or didn't use for mission and ministry. The second thing is they amassed fortunes uh, this is money that was not used for ministry and outreach. And the church uh, became very, very, very wealthy. In some places in the world, uh, it was the wealthiest entity uh, in that area, even more wealthy than governments and, and the like. There's a great story from the 12th century. Uh, some scholars debate whether it actually happened, uh, but it involved a, uh, a man named Thomas Aquinas, uh, a very influential writer uh, in the 1200s. That's the 13th century, by the way. Sorry about that. And apparently in this story, uh, Thomas Aquinas came in to uh, Pope Innocent IV uh, sometime in the mid-1200s. Uh, and in front of Pope Innocent, there was a huge sum of money uh, that he was in the process of counting. And the Pope uh, apparently said to uh, Aquinas, he said, you see, the church is no longer in that age in which she said, silver and gold have I none. Apparently, Aquinas responded, true, Holy Father, but neither can she any longer say to the lame, rise up and walk. So as the church got more and more accumulated, more and more money that it wasn't using, it began to lose its edge. And the third thing that began to happen, you can see this in history, uh, they developed hierarchies and later on denominations that no longer served to empower local churches for ministry, outreach, and the expansion of God's kingdom. So they began to develop hierarchies that would serve the people in the hierarchy, not serve the local church. Uh, and that even happens today. There are denominations that exist and, and you feel like they exist to serve the denomination, not to serve the local church. Now, there's nothing wrong with hierarchies or denominations. Uh, I believe that God has put both of those in place. But when the hierarchies and the denominations fail to serve local churches in helping them to advance their kingdom outreach, then there is a problem. And you can see that even today. There are a lot of mainline denominations, this means denominations that have been in existence for uh, one or two hundred years, who have closed their missions department. 
they no longer prioritize money for mission. They use all their money at home, servicing different things in the denomination. And so because they accumulated property that they weren't using, because they were accumulating money that they weren't using, because they were developing these hierarchies and these denominations that were completely ineffective in helping local churches uh, advance God's kingdom where they are, you saw the churches in these areas begin more and more and more and more to lose their influence, lose their edge, lose their disruptive ability for society. And in many cases, these churches began to capitulate to the mores uh, and the cultural norms of the society of the world rather than call the world to a higher standard of living. And we can see that even around us today uh, if we'll look. Now, as you know, here at City Temple, we don't call out churches and we don't seek to uh, attack or belittle any other church. Uh, but I think that anybody with discernment can look around and see some of these dynamics happening even today even in churches that seem to be incredibly popular, incredibly influential, and incredibly large. Uh, Size is not the determiner of all of this, uh, and so we need to be on the lookout and watch out for this. And we experience this even at City Temple and some of our connections denominationally uh, with the United Reformed Church. So the question comes then, how can we as churches start to function again as God's agent of disruption? What are some of the things that need to happen as we go forward from this season into into the future? And I would ask, what are some of the things that God is doing right now in the church uh, that are causing these things to happen? Now, I was inspired uh, by these three Ds, as I've referred to them, I was inspired by a guy named Peter Diamandis, uh, who is not a Christian to my knowledge. He might be. I hope he is. Uh, But he is somebody who thinks a lot about the future uh, and thinks a lot about disruptive technologies and what it takes for a technology to become genuinely disruptive in the world in such a way that it begins to recreate uh, whole ecosystems. Uh, think about Netflix, you know, and what it did in terms of live streaming, or Amazon and what it's done in terms of bookstores. And you get an idea of what we're talking about. And in that context, in the context of what he said, he points out that there are three D's uh, that tend to happen uh, around something that's genuinely disruptive. And I think these three D's also apply to churches of Jesus Christ all around the world, not only here in the UK. So I want to take you through these three Ds one by one. And each D is going to be a big word, uh, but I'll have a question to ask alongside the word. Uh, The first word, it's the one where I was going to do my Star Trek illustration. Uh, The first word is dematerialize. Now, doesn't that sound like Star Trek? dematerialize. The question here is, what property do we need as the church to be the church that God has called us to be? I want to reshare this screen here uh, so we can take a look at uh, this question, uh, some examples here that hopefully that will help you. Whoops, excuse me. 
do that. Now go forward to one more. There we go. Now look at this. If you look at everything on the left there, you got a flashlight, you got a notepad, a calculator, uh, XLR camera. Uh, there's a computer there. There's a video camera there. There's a television. There's a London A to Z. Uh, there's a travel agent down there. Oh, the one in the far bottom left is a scanner. You got a, an envelope. You've got a plane ticket. You've got a diary. You've got a bank teller there. You've got a file cabinet. You've got a wallet. You've got a, a, a calendar. You've got a bookshelf, a whole library full of books, a boom box and also a telephone. Now, 30 years ago, you needed all of those different pieces. Today, all you need is a phone. And our phones contain all of these things. In other, in other words, we have dematerialized all of these different kinds of technologies and combined them into something that is small and fits into your pocket. Now let's think about the reverse in terms of churches. Let's go to the, the next slide there. And uh, in the upper left-hand corner here, uh, you see an example, which is, is not a picture. Uh, it's a painting that represents, according to the imagination, what an early church worship service might have looked like. You've got uh, adults and children uh, crammed together into the, the front room of a house, uh, listening to one of Paul's letters being read. Uh, somebody is about to expand on those. They were singing uh, and making melody uh, with their, their voices. They probably didn't have musical instruments and, and the like. And now fast forward, follow the arrows down there, and you can see a couple of representations. One is a church service, uh, a new church that started a few years ago, uh, meeting somewhere in the world. That's on the, the bottom there. Uh, and look at the difference, all the technology, all the stuff that they are using to do church. Or you can look at the other side, which uh, happens to be Durham Cathedral. I'm not picking on the Anglicans, by the way, here, because there's nothing inherently wrong about either of those other depictions of church, but they do raise a lot of questions. How much property do you really need? How much do you really need to be the church that God has called you to be? And these are very, very important questions for us to wrestle with. I mean, uh, Wikipedia, talking about dematerializing things, Wikipedia dematerialized encyclopedias. Uh, Netflix literally dematerialized blockbuster video, uh, making thousands of buildings redundant. So, and for us, there's a big question. In light of our building redevelopment, you know, what kind of building do we need? Do we even need a building to be city temple? Uh, it's very interesting to me when I look at the history of city temples building on this site, how much of it was raised not by giving of people, but through sovereign things that God had orchestrated, such as in the 1958 building, God sovereignly orchestrated a significant gift from John Rockefeller that enabled this building to be built. Uh, even now, God is orchestrating uh, 10 million pounds, possibly more, for the redevelopment of this building. Each step of the way, God is providing for us there. 
but the question is, you know, what, what does God need? What, what is God calling us to? Now, there's nothing wrong to have property, obviously, but we need to be thinking about these questions. We need to refuse to accumulate property that we don't use directly for mission and ministry. I mean, over time, we've used every bit of this building uh, for outreach, for mission, for ministry, uh, and we will continue to do so. It's not been just a localized club, uh, but we have been an agent of influence for the kingdom of God all around London and in various places of the world, and that's key. But we still need to reduce as much stuff as possible. Uh, We need to focus on what tools are absolutely essential for us kind of like a a wartime lifestyle. We're not living in leisure, but we're realizing that we're at war with the the kingdom of darkness ruled by Satan. And so what is going to help us advance God's kingdom in the midst of all of that? We advance God's kingdom by using the resources God provides and refuse to believe that we need more than we actually have. One of the best things that Karen has taught me, uh, and she's taught me many things, Uh, She hasn't taught me to cook because I refuse to learn, Uh, but she taught me many things. And one of the biggest things she taught me is that uh, you need to use what you have before you get something else. Uh, For example, I like to play golf from time to time, although I haven't played for uh, 10 months or so. And and I've always wanted a new driver. And, and, you know, 20 years ago, I said, Karen, I'd like a new driver. And she said, Rod, when you learn to use the driver you have, you can get a new one. And I was excited. I said, okay, that's great. I still had the same driver 20 years later. Uh, and it's completely sufficient for me. I don't need to spend all that money to get something new. I need to learn to use what God has provided to the best of my ability. And then it's often when, that God provides us something new. Uh, God doesn't usually provide it first. He wants to make sure that we're obedient first. And so in order to become disruptive influence, we need to dematerialize churches. We need to start saying, is that property absolutely necessary? And it might be, but we need to start asking uh, very, very difficult questions uh, in order to return to our place of disruptive influence in the world. That's dematerialize. The second D, another big word, is demonetize. Demonetize. Uh, And the question here is, how much money do we need to be the church? Excuse me. Uh, To demonetize something, it means where where a product or a service once had a cost, we try to remove the need for a dependence on money from the equation. Uh, Let me give a simple example. Pictures. Uh, I remember a time when you had to put film in a camera. Uh, You had to take the film out of the camera. You had to take the film to uh, a film developer, and then you had to pay a lot of money to get your physical pictures developed. And then you had to have a box to keep them in, uh, or a filing cupboard, or whatever. Now, what do we do? Uh, pictures are digitized. You just pull out your phone. You take a picture with your phone. We've got nice cameras at our, uh, a nice camera at our house. I bought Karen as a present a number of years ago, but we just don't use it anymore because we have our camera with us 
all the time in our phone. And that's what we're talking about in terms of demonetizing things. Try to find a way to offer something uh, that is free or at as small a cost as possible. Now, over the last 70 years, we've actually seen the opposite of this in the church around the globe, in churches around the globe. More and more Christian leaders, churches, and organizations have sought to monetize their ministry, uh, looking uh, to ways to use ministry activities in order to generate revenue. Let me give you just a couple of examples of this. Uh, I remember a time with Christian music, when contemporary Christian music, uh, rock and roll, uh, Christian rock and roll and, and that like, uh, w- was new. When you would go to a concert, the concert would almost always be in a church building, um, and uh, you would go to that concert for free. There's no charge. There are no tickets. Uh, you just go, you pack yourself into the church building, and sometime halfway through the concert, the, the worship band or the band would, would take up an offering uh, and just trust the Lord to provide from that offering. Uh, uh, when they sold CDs uh, or uh, cassettes uh, or LPs, I mean, taking you back a, a ways now, uh, when they sold product, the product was sold cheaply. Uh, oftentimes, it was sold at the cost of producing it, not looking for a profit, because their goal was to get music into homes as much as possible and use the music, the Christian music, to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Keith Green, for example, um, and if you've never heard Keith Green, look him up on Spotify, uh, was one of the most powerful early Christian music pioneers, and hundreds, if not thousands of people came to Christ at his concerts. Now, Christian music... Uh, is tightly controlled. There's a copyright. In the old days, the copyright only existed actually to make sure that nobody stole your music. It wasn't about making money. But now, copyright is about making money. Um, you know, people are, are charging uh, as much as possible for, for the music itself, although Spotify and other digital platforms are changing that. Uh, but now you even have worship concerts where people are paying 25, 30, 40, 50 pounds to go to worship the Lord. And the demand is for more and more stuff and more and more money, and they're seeking to, to, to use, to monetize their ministry. Uh, churches, back uh, go back 70 years ago, churches were supported by the giving uh, from their members. And the members were encouraged to give, uh, but certainly there wasn't a big deal made out of it. Uh, It was just an encouragement. Many churches had an annual sermon about tithing, uh, but people were faithful in giving to their churches. Now, you look at churches, and uh, every week uh, they have to have some kind of extensive fundraising pitch that sometimes can take 15, 20 minutes telling you why you should give and all the the reasons, good reasons to give. Uh, You've got product sales. You have branding and things like that to encourage people to give. I know of one church, for example, that has a monthly subscription product box. So you pay them a certain amount on a monthly basis, and they send you a box of products. Now, the problem is with all of this that this begins to coerce leaders to turn people into consumers 
in order to raise money. And that begins to violate the whole heart of the gospel and our whole purpose together as the people of God. Well, the final D here is democratize. And the question comes, how much hierarchy do we need to be the church? I love John Wimber. uh, And I loved one of the things he always said was everyone gets to play. One of his passions as a church leader and a church planter was to create an environment where everyone can do ministry. Everyone might have an opportunity to lead. Everyone would have an opportunity to serve. And, and that's really, really, you know, at the heart, I think, of the gospel. Now, biblically, there was a hierarchy, but it was clear. The elders are the ones who governed, who oversaw, who, who would oversee the local church. And then the fivefold ministry would come around and help to equip God's people. There was no kind of stratifying fivefold ministry to where you got, you know, apostles as the great CEOs of Christianity uh, and the like. Uh, And we need to move. We're in a season where we have to move more and more ministry back to Christians and away from professional Christian leaders. And I'm saying that as somebody who gets paid uh, as, as a pastor to serve you. Now, Obviously, it is all right for some people to get paid. Uh, Paul is clear on that. Jesus is clear on that, especially people who labor in preaching and teaching, prayer and the ministry of the word. It is okay for those persons to to receive some kind of support uh, from the church so that they can live freely uh, and serve freely. But I have seen over the last 20 years this increase of Christians looking to churches for a job. Now, back, back in a time, if you were a worship leader, that was a volunteer post. And now today, even small churches are being forced to employ worship leaders who do nothing much more than actually lead worship. Now, we went, at City Temple, we want to see more and more churches started with more church leaders, and we want to see more and more people move into ministry and serve the Lord as God's called them to serve. Now, not only does this require professional leaders like myself not to be controlling, to be releasing in in how we let people engage in ministry, it also requires Christians to step up and assume the ministry and leadership to which God has called or gifted them under the oversight of the local church elders. That's what we're all called to do, uh, and we need to step up into that. And so when we start to uh, dematerialize, demonetize, and democratize the church of Jesus Christ in this era, I believe that the church is going to regain some of its disruptive influences in society. And interestingly, if we dematerialize, demonetize, and democratize the church, that will help insulate us against things like viruses, pandemics, uh, and massive building closures. We're really entering into a new season where we have to seek the Lord and really be clear uh, on what the Lord is calling us to do. So how, how do we do this as Christians? How do we participate in God's process here to help churches become Once again, the disruptive influences in our societies, uh, disruption for good, disruption out of love, by the way. Uh, How how do we participate in that as individuals? 
Well, I think we can look to the, the, the text we read to find some clues. Now, the first thing overall is we need to reshape our understanding of what churches are and what churches look like as they are led by God. Now, this is much more difficult than you might think. Remember, we've talked about this loss aversion. And, and I know I've been struggling with this as I've been listening to the Lord the last couple of months, as I've been asking the Lord about the future. Uh, sometimes I feel like the Lord steering me, pushing me in directions that I'm saying, I'm not sure I can go in that direction. Uh, and I wonder, are we going to lose something that's important? And so it can be a real challenge for us. Um, and, and as we do this, we need to remember it will raise many more questions than we have answers for. In this whole process, God doesn't usually tell us the end from the beginning. <clears throat> we just have to follow him along the way. The second thing, and this is from the text, just like Barnabas did, we need to rejoice at the grace of God on people and in our midst. Right now at City Temple, we have an amazing grace of God upon us as a church family. Uh, and this grace, uh, as a church, uh, for the last 30, 40, 50 years, we've been, as one church leader in London told me years ago, we've been punching above our weight. In other words, the influence we've had over the last 50 years is much larger than the numbers of people that we've had. And we'll continue to have that kind of influence. That's God's grace in our midst. Uh, we need to also remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. God is calling us to faithfulness right now. And we need to be listening to him and be steadfast in our determination to do whatever it is that God tells us to do. Uh, we need to resource God's people according to our ability. It's time for us all to give, for us all to share, for us all to participate as God has given us ability in the larger body of Christ uh, and in doing ministry and in doing leadership uh, all of those things come together. And finally, we need to respond obediently to the Lord, going where he sends us and doing what he tells us to do, again, under the oversight of God's appointed leaders who are the elders in any church family. Uh, but we need to be going in obedience to the Lord. And the purpose of the elders, by the way, is not to uh, give us permission to do ministry, but is to provide oversight for what we are doing to make sure that we don't fall into unhealthy or unhelpful traps or start engaging in ministry in a way that will take us off the direction that God has for us uh, and into some alien place that will not be for our good. I really believe that we are living in a day when God has the church on the move. I think God is calling us to move from being consumers of church to being creators of church, from church as a place that we go to, to church as a people we belong to, from church as a super center, supermarket kind of thing, to church as a community center, reaching around us more effectively, from conformity to what all the other churches are doing, to non-conformity that comes by the Spirit of God from disease, because so many churches are sick and unhealthy these days, to disruption. And the fundamental question for each of us is, will you move with God? Let's pray. 
Gracious God, thank you for all this. I know it's a lot, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to understand, to know uh, what you're saying and what you're calling us to do. Uh, And I pray, Lord God, that as a church, City Temple uh, might know what you're saying in terms of dematerializing, demonetizing, and democratizing so that we can become disruptive in a positive way in our society, seeing many hundreds, if not thousands of people all around London come to faith in Jesus Christ and grow to be mature followers of Jesus. Lord, you know that's on our hearts because you put it there. And we pray that you would empower us to do that. We love you, we worship you, and we adore you. And we pray all of this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.